0: We are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. November 19, 2013, Mark, the 150th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's speech contained 272 words and took about two minutes to read. In 2013, an editorial in the New York Times said the brief speech still has the power to do what words are rarely able to do, invoke eloquent silence. Further, it states, there is an overpowering immediacy in these plain words. In 1863, Lincoln's speech was generally received well, but Lincoln had his critics. The Harrisburg Patriot, local paper, derided Lincoln's address by calling them silly remarks. The New York world accused Lincoln of gross ignorance and willful misstatement. The Chicago Times reported, the cheeks of every American must tingle with shame. As he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of the man... Who has to be pointed out to foreigners as the President of the United States? The London Times put it this way the ceremony at Gettysburg was rendered ludicrous by some of the sallies of that poor President Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln had his critics, just like Jesus had his critics. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus' critics seek to take Jesus' life into their control. But like Abraham Lincoln, Jesus is not remembered for what his critics thought, okay? Mark chapter 14, open your text, please. And um, this passage begins verses 1 through 11. If you follow along on your outline in your program, the extravagant gift the extravagant gift. The sermon title is Betrayed, but we're going to start with an extravagant gift. It's an extravagant gift of love that was expressed to Jesus. But the passage starts with the betrayal plot, verses 1 and 2. The betrayal plot unfolds. Look at verse 1. This is Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. He will be crucified on Friday morning. Now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. In Jesus' day, those two things, the Passover meal and the feast of the unleavened bread, were often put together, it was a one-day event and a seven-day event, into an eight-day event called the Passover feast. So sometimes in Scripture, one is referring to both of those events. Sometimes it's referring to the day of the Passover the Passover meal marked a great celebration from the Old Testament. It was inaugurated in Exodus chapter 12, and it celebrated how God led the people of Israel out of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh. God used miracles to free the people of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, and God led them out on this final night when uh, they were required to uh, sacrifice a lamb, take it into their home, and eat it as a family. It started at sundown, and it would end at midnight. And that night, God would send an angel, angel over Egypt. And the angel passed over the homes where God's people put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house. Well, the Egyptians didn't care about any of this, even though they had opportunity. When God passed over, there there was a death of the firstborn in every house where there was no blood on the doorpost. There was no covering of the blood. The Passover meal celebrated God's rescue and provision of his people in the history of Israel. And they had been celebrating this for 1,400, 1,500 years by the time of Jesus So um, the chief priests, verse 1, and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. They wanted to do it secretly. And during this time of this Passover feast, there were thousands and thousands of extra people in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, One writer says, normally Jerusalem might be 50,000 people, but during the Passover it was 250,000 people. And so you can imagine the leaders of Israel... The the religious leaders, they want to be very careful about how they handle the Jesus situation. Jesus is like a rock star. If you remember all the miracles he's done, he's very popular. People listen to him, and so they're very cautious. They want to do this secretly, and they intend to kill him. But they said, verse 2, but not during the festival, or the people may riot. They're they're smart leaders. They're wise leaders, right? And so uh, they want to do this secretly secretly. This has been growing for some time. We first learn about this way back in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 11 verse 18 says this: The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. You remember Jesus rode into the city on a donkey on the Sunday before the triumphal entry. On Monday he went into the temple and he drove out the money changers and those who were buying and selling in the temple. He cleansed it spiritually, that was. And he was making the leaders upset. Mark chapter 12, verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So these leaders, they want to arrest Jesus, they want to kill him, but they're waiting for the opportune time. Now we switch gears. The gift of love expressed, verse 3. So this betrayal plot is unfolding. It's waiting to happen. And then we have this little side story, chapter 14, verse 3. While he was in Bethany, let's, let's go see our map here. Okay, we haven't had a map for weeks. So we're, this is the land of Israel. You can see the Sea of Galilee in the north. Jesus spent most of his career up there in the north in the Galilean ministry, around the Sea of Galilee. He would come down to Jerusalem for celebrations. So the teaching you see in Jerusalem is always around a celebration like this feast of the Passover. You can see the Mount of Olives. Jesus would go there. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And you see Bethany. They're a couple of miles apart. Bethany and the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus used to hang out at Bethany where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. When he came to Jerusalem from the north, he would hang out in Bethany at their house. So, um, well, he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon. So he's not at Lazarus' home, whom he raised from the dead. He's at Simon the leper's home. We don't know who Simon the leper is, not mentioned in any other place. Likely someone that Jesus had healed, a leper that had been healed in Jesus' ministries. It could be the one he healed very uh, early in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41. We don't know that. The interesting thing is the audience knows who he is. He's Simon the leper. Well, everybody knows who that is. They knew it in the first century. Uh, his disciples knew who Simon the leper was. We don't know for sure, but likely there, there's a celebration here in it's... It's uh, during this week, this this feast, and uh, they're having a get-together, and it's probably because uh, this guy is so grateful that he's been healed by Jesus. We don't know that, but what we do know is a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Now, we don't do things like this, but she had this alabaster jar with a long, narrow neck, and it was full of... Pure nard, very expensive perfume. It was imported from India. May have been handed down from generation to generation by the women and her family. Very expensive uh, perfume. and It's not like loaded with alcohol. Um, it's it's uh, probably an oil-based uh, perfume. And then it says, uh, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head may uh, seem a little unusual, but people were sometimes anointed with oil with, during a celebration. Um, the, then we, we see the critics speak in verses 4 and 5. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why the waste of this perfume? It, couldn't, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. So uh, Jesus had critics, and this woman has critics. Now, who did the expensive perfume belong to? It belonged to the woman. It didn't belong to this group. It belonged to her. It was up to her to give, not for them to decide what she should do with it. And they considered this a waste. All, All they see is dollar signs and They're missing what's happening here. They're missing the person. They're missing an act of love. They rebuke her harshly. They just analyze this thing and they say, oh, this is what should have been done. She's not thinking. You know, she's just emotional. And uh, it says this could be sold for more than a year's wages and given to the poor. It was a practice uh, during the Passover to take an offering for the poor. There, it, there was a time where j- people just did this, and so they set aside a little bit of money, and they gave, and it was for the poor. It was a good thing to do. But there's a calculation here that this was worth a year's worth of wages. So how much is that? Well, you can calculate on first century value, which doesn't help us too much, but let's calculate it on our values. So if I made seven twenty-five dollars an hour... For 40 hours, for 52 weeks, that's about $15,000. But what if I make a whole lot more than that? I make $10 an hour for 40 hours at 52 weeks. That's about $20,800. And here's the point. It was expensive perfume. Do you have any perfume that costs that much? Maybe you do. But um, it was something that is rationalized here. This could be sold and we could have this $20,000 and give it to the poor. Um, John chapter 12, verse 4 through 6 gives us a little insight. This is the great thing about the Gospels. You please remember, Mark didn't intend to record everything there is to know about Jesus. Matthew didn't either. Luke didn't either. John didn't either. But together we have a ton of information. And often they give us helpful information about the same event. For example, verse John chapter 12, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? So Judas is the one who speaks up in the group in Mark 14. Other people in the group agreed with Judas, but Judas was the one who spoke up. It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor. Here's the key thing. He didn't care about the poor. But because he was a thief... This is a real insight. This is an inspired insight into um, Judas. We don't, we don't see this as he's traveling three years with Jesus, but as we get down to the end, we see more about the character of Judas. He was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he's thinking, sell this perfume. It's worth fifteen dollars or $20,000. I'll get my cut. That's how he operated he was an embezzler. Um, just thinking in terms of an application for this about, you know, this woman does something, and she does it with good intentions and a good heart, and, um, and then she gets a critic. Abraham Lincoln had his critic, critics. And um, everybody has critics. But here's, I just want to remind us, many of you are critical thinkers, Judas was probably a critical thinker. He was very analytic. Some of you are very strong in analytic skills. It's the ability to think, to evaluate, to divide ideas, to discern categories, be systematic. It's very helpful. One of the dangers of critical thinking is when we become a critical person. And we criticize other people. We criticize work of the ministry. We criticize politics. We criticize people we don't like. And we get very negative. And I just want to remind us, that's not what God intends with our speech. And uh, use your critical thinking to solve problems and to help. Don't use your critical thinking to be critical people and to be... And to provide criticism. This is a really big deal. Parents for raising kids. A lot of us, I was raised with critical parents because they were raised with critical parents. And I didn't get very much encouragement along the way. And a lot of you know what that's like. And criticism is really destructive if you're trying to raise kids. And they need encouragement. They need to know when they're on the right track. They need positive uh, reinforcement. And if you just... Continually show them where they're, where they're short, their shortfalls, uh, it's really hurtful. If I had my parenting to do over again with small kids, I would want to do it entirely different because a lot of my family filtered down in my early years of parenting. I wish I knew today, I wish I knew then what I know today about the value of encouragement. In verse 6, the criticism is deflected. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. So one of the things we see here, Jesus had an entirely different view of the situation than the critics. Uh, He didn't see the dollar sign and view it as wastefulness. He saw her heart. He saw the love. He saw the kindness. He saw generosity. He He saw it as something beautiful. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, but this is Jesus. And he has the best view of what's appropriate. And uh, he was a defender of this woman. And one of the things you see in the life of Jesus, he defends women over and over. He steps in in a culture that tended just to pay no attention to uh, what they said or what they thought. And Jesus steps in and he receives uh, the gift of love that she expressed. And the significance is explained in verses 7 through 9. The poor, he says, will always, the poor you will have, you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. There was something you'll always have, and there was something you will not always have. You will always have the opportunity to give to the poor. Giving to the poor was uh, God's requirement in the Old Testament. Giving to the poor is God's requirement in the New Testament, and you're always going to have that opportunity, Jesus said but there's an opportunity you're not going to have long, and that's me, an opportunity because he's leaving. There will be no other opportunity like this again. And uh, she did what she could, Jesus said. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my burial. Jesus saw it totally different. She was doing it. She was, through an act of love, preparing his body for burial. Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows that death is ahead. The disciples are kind of clueless. I don't know how much the woman knew. Intuitively, she may have known how serious the situation was without the facts. Jesus knows he is about to die, and he sees her act of love as a preparation for his burial. Then he says in verse 9, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, Throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Here we are today talking about this woman because of what she did, because of what Jesus did. She prepared him for burial. He did die on the cross. He did pay the penalty for our sins, and that's good news. Because we can be forgiven and we can have eternal life because of this. And this message is proclaimed today. That's why we're here. And as a side note, so is the story of this woman who expressed an extravagant gift of love. One application for us is, you know, it's okay to express extravagant love to Jesus. It's okay to give extravagantly to Jesus. Maybe you should from time to time be extravagant. Sometimes we do extravagant things for ourselves. We pamper ourselves. We do something fun for us. We do something special for us. What do you do special, above and beyond what's regular? Something extravagant for Jesus. The the betrayal plot develops in verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. You see, the city is just flooded with people. It's dangerous. We can't control the crowd. The chief priests want to wait until they all leave, but now Judas has come forward, and he's going to help them, and they can do it in secret, and they can figure out a way to arrest Jesus when the crowds don't know what's going on. This is a good deal for them. The chief priests were delighted. Luke chapter 22, Luke tells us this. Now the festival of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas. That's another thing Luke tells us was going on. Mark doesn't tell us this, but Luke wants wants us to know. This is major spiritual warfare happening here. Then Satan entered Jesus, called Iscariot, one of the 12. Next slide. And Judas went to the chief priests. That's what empowered him to go, gave him the courage. Jesus went, uh, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. He says, I think I can tell you where you can find him. I know where he camps out at night. It'll be a small group. It'll be easy. Verse 5, they were delighted and agreed to give him money. In fact, it was 30 pieces of silver. Judas has given up on Jesus. It, It doesn't seem to be worth it any longer. His return is not good enough with Jesus. And so he's willing to walk away. The Last Supper is in verses 12 through 26. First, we see the preparations made. The Last Supper is, is that institution of what we call, sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Table. We call it Communion. It's called the Eucharist. Um, here's where it happens. Preparations made, verses 12 through th- 16. Now the day is Thursday. On the first day of the festival, the unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. So it's going to be sacrificed that day because it's going to be eaten that night. The day changes at sundown from Thursday to Friday on the Jewish calendar. Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city. And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you and follow him. This was unique because men typically didn't carry the water. I'm sorry. It was usually the women. Men would have carried something else, but the women would have carried the water. Say to the owner of the house, he enters, the teacher, ask, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So this was probably somehow prearranged. And this is somebody who knew Jesus from the past. Somebody who was willing to take Jesus into his home. It's kind of risky, um, but this was somebody that wanted to honor Jesus. Verse fifteen: He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make pre- make preparations for us there. there. would the food would have to be ready. That would be fruit and herbs and lamb and the wine. The room would have had couches to recline on. That was a custom of the first century. The meal started after sundown and had to be eaten before uh, midnight and within the walls of Jerusalem. That's why they went from Bethany. That's why they didn't eat the meal in Bethany. That's why they came to Jerusalem. This room had to be large enough for 12 couches because it was customary in this time to recline. Verse 16, the disciples left and went into the city and found things just as Jesus told them so they prepared the Passover one little thing is happening here it's not a really big deal Jesus gives instructions and he expects his disciples to follow and Mark records Jesus said this and it happened just like Jesus said we did what Jesus asked and he was right and it worked out little things and the disciples are getting this they aren't ready for some of the big things here's what they're learning they're learning that they can trust Jesus he gives instructions he wants them to follow through, and they're learning. We can do this. And he's, we don't know how it's going to work yet, but he is going to give us what we need to do what he asks us to do. They're going to learn how to trust him in the big things. Right now, they're still learning about the little things. And so the question is, are you learning to trust Jesus? First in the little things, and then in the bigger things as you grow. Are you learning? Can you trust him? Are you learning to trust him with your schoolwork? Are you learning to trust him with your relationships? With uh, who's going to be the one that you marry? Can you trust him with that? Can you trust him with your marriage? Can you trust him in your workplace? I mean, he's going to provide for you. Uh, he's going to take care of you in that workplace. He just wants you to walk with him. Can you trust him with your kids? Can you trust him with your future? Disciples were learning that Jesus could be trusted. Verse 17 and 18, the betrayers announced, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12 while they were reclining at the table eating. He said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, in the first century, way more than for us, eating together was an intimate social relationship. And uh, it required trust and loyalty. And it would be abhorrent to betray somebody that you had had table fellowship with. And so Jesus is announcing while they're eating together. This is shocking to the disciples. Someone is going to betray Jesus. And it's someone in the room. The the betrayer is identified in verses 19 through 21. They were saddened and one by one, they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. Even Judas said it. Even Judas. Verse 20, It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And then he says, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Mark does not betray Name the betrayer, John Will. But one of the interesting things here is Jesus again identifies himself as the Son of Man. Who is that? Very important person in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. It's also that picture that Jesus used, and we saw it either last week or two weeks ago. When Jesus comes again at the second coming, he will come with great glory, the Son of Man in the clouds. John 13, 25 through 28. We see John's perspective here. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? We we believe that's John who asked the question. John never identifies him. We just know that John's the one that Jesus loved. So John... Humbly talked about himself. leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is one to whom I will give the piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Next slide. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What are you about to do? Do quickly. But no one at the meal, understood why Jesus said this to him. Jesus spoke to Judas, and Judas knew Jesus got it. And we see again the spiritual warfare. Satan himself enters. Uh, Sometimes we talk about Satan a lot of different ways, and we, we often give Satan way too much credit. There are angels and uh, there are fallen angels and there are demons and there is one that leads them and his name is Satan, but he's not everywhere in every place at one time. He's only at one place at one time in the universe in history. Right then he was in Judas to enable Judas to carry out what the enemy wanted to accomplish. Now the Passover meal continues, but some changes are going to be made. Verses 22 through 26, the Lord's Supper established. Look, the bread is in verse 22. While they were eating, during this meal, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. And Jesus just went offline from the normal Passover instruction. During the meal, a person led the dinner and explained the Passover, and explained the meaning of the meal. Now, Jesus has just changed everything here. And he said, he, uh, he took the bread, he, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. So the big question here, this is my body? What does it mean? It's been a great debate with churches through the centuries. This is my body. Was Jesus saying this piece of bread was literally his flesh? Or did he have an arm and a hand and fingers holding the bread? I take, that, I take it that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. The bread was not his flesh literally. The bread was his flesh Symbolically, the bread represented his flesh, represented his body. Um, So, uh, and Jesus used symbols on many occasions. This is just like a no brainer. He often used symbols to describe himself. He said, I am the door. He said, uh, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the resurrection. Always speaking metaphorically. Luke, uh, verse, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Luke uh, gives us this information. It says, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now Mark doesn't record that part. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul picks this up. These are the instructions given to the church in 1 Corinthians 11. Do this in remembrance of me. We're to take the bread. His disciples were to take the bread. They were to do this in the future. It would be over and over and over. And they were to remember Jesus' body. Probably didn't mean a lot to them that night. But after he dies on the cross and pays the penalty for their sin and then experiences resurrection, this is going to make a whole lot more sense. To remember what he did with his body. He gave it for them and paid the penalty for their sins as an ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus said, I want you to remember this. And I think this is marvelous instruction for the church because we have a tendency to get interested in all kinds of spiritual things that are important at the time. Sometimes it's a family, sometimes it's part of the spiritual life or spiritual disciplines. We get really excited about things that are important, we get excited about the Bible. We get excited about everything but Jesus sometimes. And we miss out that, oh, Jesus died on the cross for us. That's the most important. That's central. That's what communion is about. It's also what baptism is about. We're going to have a baptism this afternoon. And uh, baptism is a picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to a new life. Into the water, death and burial. Out of the water, resurrection to a new life. Central truth. The death of Jesus for the church, baptism and communion. The cup is verses 23 through 26. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they ate. They all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is really significant. I don't think the disciples got it. I wouldn't have got it if I'd have been a disciple. I hoped I would remember it, but it's going to be majorly significant later. So Jesus took the cup. It was a cup of red wine. It was a common cup. They all drank from the same cup. It was symbolic of his blood. It was not his blood. It was symbolic. It represented his blood. In the Old Testament, the covenant that God made with Moses was inaugurated with the blood of a lamb. And the blood of the new covenant, a new arrangement God will have with people, is going to be the blood of the Lamb of God named Jesus. And it's going to be his death and the blood he sheds on the cross that will inaugurate that new relationship, the new covenant. It's a covenant that Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 31. And it will be poured out for many. It will cover... The forgiveness, it will be an atonement for many. Now, we just think, well, that's a lot. Many, how many people is that? And the scriptures say it's for everyone. It's for all people. Isaiah 53 teaches that. John three sixteen teaches that. Um, Romans 5, 8 teaches that. And then he says in verse 25, Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So here Jesus ends the meal with a prediction. He said, and by the way, in the meal, there would have been one more round of wine. And he doesn't go that far. He stops it here. And he says, I'm not going to drink again with you until I drink it again with you new in the kingdom. And he's looking into the future kingdom. We see it in Revelation 19. We see it at the wedding feast of the Lamb. When Jesus celebrates at a wedding feast with his church. And this is when there's going to be a fulfillment. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And uh, so they depart to the Mount of Olives, you remember, on the map. So this is my blood. What does this mean? And you already know it was not the way I'm understanding it was not literally, it was blood. It was a metaphor. He was speaking symbolically. Let me just uh, take you through what a lot of you... We, if you have been raised in a church or have any instruction about communion in your past, it's primarily one of three views. There are three or four views held by churches today. The first one is called the Roman view. And the Roman view is also called sometimes transubstantiation... When the words of institution, what are the words of institution? It's when the priest says, this is my blood. Those are words of institution. That's how it got started by Jesus. When the words of institution are spoken by the priest, the bread and the wine are miraculously changed into the body and blood of Christ. This is a means of grace for salvation. This is the view of the Roman church. i not... I'm not trying to bash. I'm trying to explain, okay? And so when the words are spoken, this is my blood, there is a miracle that takes place, and that piece of bread actually becomes the body of Jesus Christ. It is no longer bread. And so the person actually receives Jesus by eating the bread. And when they do, it's a means of grace. It's called a sacrament And it means grace is imparted to me because I have received Jesus. That's the Roman view, okay? Another view, similar but different, is the Lutheran view. This is a view I was raised with. It's called consubstantiation. When the words of institution are spoken by the pastor, Christ is present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. So something takes place at the words of institution, and Christ is present. It's a sacrament, and when you do this, you receive grace. And the goal is, the more grace you have, the better chance you have of being saved. Okay? Um, I think these are just helpful in communicating the gospel, because what is the gospel, and how do you get grace? Grace. Do you get grace because you take communion, or do you get grace because Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins, and if you believe in him, you get the whole thing? Okay, memorial view. The bread and the cup, the wine and the grape juice. Now, let's, let me just comment on that. Every once in a while, I have to remember to explain. We do grape juice, okay? It's the fruit of the vine. We can do wine. It doesn't make any difference. I don't think God cares if I think what he wants us to do is to remember. I could do wine. I could do grape juice. We have this issue in the American church and the overuse of alcohol in our culture that it's, it's a very delicate, sensitive thing. And so along the way, we have a tradition of using grape juice. It's a tradition. It's not right or wrong, okay? It's not better. It's just a tradition. So the bread and the cup, wine or grape juice, are symbolic of Christ's body and blood. This is not a means of grace for salvation, but a reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us. We are to continually remember it. Keep it at the forefront of our thinking, central to who we are as a follower of Christ. It's, it keeps me humble. You know, I, uh, I don't have to worry about being overcompetent. It's, it's, it's God's reminder. I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace. I'm just like everybody else. I'm just a sinner. I'm saved by grace. That's good. Okay. The reason we take communion, and we're going to transition to communion right now. The reason we take communion is because we're commanded to. And um, let me just read what Paul tells the church. We've had some teaching here about communion from Jesus and how it got instituted. And you really study all four gospels, actually three gospels. It's not in John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here's what Paul says. This is for us for sure, it's the church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So Paul says, I got this from Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, passage we've studied, took bread, and when he had given thanks and broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul includes that here. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's what it's about. It's about the Lord's death until he comes. He is coming back, by the way. And he wants us to practice this until he gets here. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, We'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, a man or a woman ought to examine himself or herself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So Paul reminds us this is serious and important, and we should just stop and examine. We need to have some self-evaluation. Or how about some self-criticism? Before we turn our criticism on other people, let's turn it inward in a healthy way. What's out of line with God? Let's bring ourselves into an alignment with the Lord Jesus Christ and what he desires for us. And so we should examine um, what, how our lives stack up with God. The big, the big debate here about what, whether Christ is present in the bread and the cup or the bread and the wine is not the biggest issue here. Jesus is present because he is present in the church where two or three are gathered together together. In his name, there he is, right in the middle of us. The real question about communion is are you present? Are you here? Are you with God? Are you in the right place? Are are you uh, under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you spiritually fit? And so um, we want to do a self evaluation. And for some of us, the question is have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you understand what it means that he died on the cross for you, that he's offering forgiveness of sins and he's offering eternal life? And the transaction is about can you believe what Jesus has done for you? Can you believe what he said? When you, can you believe what God said about his son? If you're already a follower of Christ, Scripture says if we uh, confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And um, so we just if there's sin in our life, if there's attitudes, if we're critical people, selfish, prideful, we just need to bring it to God right now, humbly, quietly, and privately, and confess it to him. And he will forgive and purify you of all unrighteousness. Let's bow in prayer. Just take some time before God. Is is there anything you need to say to God? You can start by saying thank you, God. Start listing things that he's done for you. Thank him that he died on the cross. Thank you that he offers forgiveness and he's made a way, a provision to be reinstated. That he's equipped you with everything you need to walk with him. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, my encouragement would be Consider the claims of Jesus. Even talk to somebody who will help you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you and the gift that he offers. If you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about it. Right now I'd like to ask those who are going to serve us to c- come to, to the front and uh, prepare Communion for us. And so, Father, right now, as we come to this time to remember Jesus, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body, that reminds us that he was nailed to a cross, that reminds us that he sacrificed himself totally. Totally. And then, Father, we take the cup and we say thank you. And it reminds us of the blood that was shed when Jesus was nailed to the cross, when he was crucified. And we were reminded, God, that his sacrifice fulfilled all that you required when it comes to justice in paying the sin penalty. And that God the Father was satisfied with the payment for our sin, the death of Jesus. And we say, thank you. Amen.